Welcome to What's Left, a weekly political discussion challenging the mainstream left. Uh, I'm Eduardo Barca, we co-host, teacher and socialist Andy Lipson, and community organizing socialist Kenny Cepeda. We are online at what-s-left.webnote.com. Please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications, share your favorite episode, and jot down our information wherever you found this episode. <coughs> Thanks. So we will be discussing the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict that uh, has been making headlines, but is also an ongoing topic, I think, since we did have a conversation about this sometime 2018 on what's left. Uh, but because of recent events, I think we might need a refresher. And I think it's also important that Kenny gives his ideas around this because uh, at that time, Kenny wasn't with us, no? Yeah, and just, I'll probably post the previous episodes. I think we they were, they were roughly a year apart. And I think the episodes talked, in one, we talked about how Palestinians have the right to resist and the right to resistance in general um, is something. And then we also talked about how Israel is an apartheid state. Um, and those were things that at the time I, I wondered, Eduardo, like you were maybe not sure we should say Israel is an apartheid state. I'm not sure how you feel now necessarily, but I think those were the things that I think we acknowledged then. Did you say that's true, Eduardo? Yeah, I think at the time I, I was feeling there was a lot of controversy around anti-Semitic statements, mm. um, not valuing also Israeli lives being lost and the way that um, sometimes these words are very charged without giving context. And I, I think we're past that. This is 2021. And I think it's quite understood given how much has unfolded that it is devastating what's happening uh, in Palestine. So, yeah, I comfortable with that. So, and we, we just thought now it would be important to maybe like cover a little bit more history about of the region. It's impossible for, for people, any of us to completely cover this. We're actually, we're opening the, some of these stories up for ourselves as well as for our audience who's listening. So do not think of this as like the complete story of the region, but, um, but we thought it would be good to talk about what's happening today in light of where the people, Palestinians have been and where Israelis have been and where the US and the British have been in relationship to that. Um, and there's other forces as well, but those are, I think, some of the players you're gonna hear about today. And it's a story of, I think it is, it is a story of ethnic cleansing. It's a story of, of, of colonization um, and it continues. And so, the resistance to imperialism, whether that be Israeli imperialism, supported by U.S. imperialism, is a just resistance. So I think we want to lay some things out about what some background to that and how we got here, because everyone thinks this is about Hamas rockets and then Israel responding. And that's not that's very limited view of what's taking place. Maybe we'll start off with our initial thoughts of why we thought this was important. Well, yeah, Kenny. Yeah, I mean, uh, for me, often um, issues I, are discussed in isolation um, in when in fact they have uh, ramifications for the world. Um, um, I'm in the field of immigration here in the U.S., you know, and, and often it gets uh, overseen. I was also born in Guatemala, and Guatemala actually plays 
part in the story of Israel. Um, in so again, often we, we see issues in isolation. Of course, what's happening is, you know, it's uh, an apartheid state. It's a, a, a Israel, the Israeli state to me is a fascist institution. Um, and, um, but again, it has implications. Uh, a lot of the technology that is used in the occupation of you know, Palestine and in, in, in oppression of Palestinians migrates back to the border here to Central America um, in the military and it actually has, there is this uh, exchange. Uh, it also has implications for the politics here in the US. Uh, so what's happening now, it's, it's, it's not divorced from um, our own uh, direct lives. Um, it's not just, it's not a separate issue, I guess, what I wanted to say. And the last thing is that I, I again, like you said, Lipson, I'm discovering things that I didn't know before. And for example, one thing is like how, how much the British have to were involved in this whole mess, um, because I understood it as just a U.S.-Israel thing, but but it's not. It goes back and it's it's, it's part of a, the history of empire. Um, I'll just state that I think this is important. Um, I, it's important. I'm just a little bit um, hesitant when it comes to the progressive liberal left uh, jumping on bandwagons and and then. Um, forgetting about this Israeli-Palestinian conflict afterwards. And not only that, um, their solidarity really comes through our own actions as we take here in the USA or wherever we are at, right? If I'm in Mexico, in my country, then I, I will be taking actions there to be able to be in solidarity with the Palestinians in that state. So I do feel sometimes that this conflict is almost fetishized um, by the left, and I, I want to take um, the way. The, I want to just encourage people that the way to be in solidarity is to make sure that we ourselves also take on this struggle, this fight. You no, know? and so here in the USA, as it relates over there, and so that's all my initial thoughts with this because we've already had this conversation. But it is important, and we shouldn't undermine its importance. But our struggle. Our fight is always in solidarity when we take on the ruling class here as well, you know? And that means calling out hypocrisy and being stop being complicit with this state when we're here in the USA, and especially here in the liberal left of San Francisco. So that's where I'm, I'm a little bit feeling over the past recent marches and rallies here in San Francisco. Um, yeah, I, that really is my starting point too, Eduardo. Like, obviously, I, I support the right of resistance. I also think about all the stuff about ISIS that's been going on, about the US occupation of, of Afghanistan and Al Qaeda and saying that those people don't, those people in there, anybody who resists US occupation or quizzling governments, that they are some sort of, they're, they're not allowed to do that. I think all resistance against occupation is justified um, and support all of it in any of its forms. Um, and the US is occupying plenty of places. But I, I did have the same, and I talked to Brian about this, and. I keep going back and forth because I think it's good that the left has a knee-jerk re response to, to say, no, this is wrong, what's happening to the Palestinians and we support them. But I don't, I don't know what it means when that same left, that's saying it supports the Palestinians, completely falls for the state policies of lockdown, of vac mass vaccinations, of vaccine passports, of contact tracing. So what does it mean when the US work, when workers in the United States support their own state and all the programs that are, that are, that are prosing them. And then they say they are going to be in solidarity with 
with people who are feeling essentially even worse elements of that kind of repression elsewhere. It, it puts me in a very conflicting state to say, like, it just seems out of step when the force, the left, which is saying it, it supports Palestinian resistance, offers no resistance whatsoever to what's being imposed here. I struggle at that point. Um, and I've seen my own union take up causes in names of things for immigrant rights and things like that, and not lift a finger to strike and do all sorts of things to set our cause backwards. And there's a, there's a, there's a problem there. So that's the problem I'm running into in some of this. So nevertheless, I think there's something to be understood here. And I think that the reason people even have a knee jerk response is there's a history to this that is completely, um, uh, that, that is completely one-sided in saying why you should support the Palestinians. But I also want to remind people that Alison McDowell has been on this show a lot. And when you think about what's happening to the Palestinians right now, you have to understand that this process is what, she, when she thinks about, when she's talking about the fourth industrial revolution, she's saying that this process that's taking place with the fourth industrial revolution is creating a planet that makes all of us increasingly like Palestinians. In, in, a, in a world that's separated and, and we can't move within it, and we are and we are surveilled, and we have and, and our rights are stripped from us. I don't want to equate myself to my own situation, but that is the world that she is saying is is getting created for all of us. And I do agree that with that that that's the stakes when we talk about remote learning and things like that. So this is not just a Palestinian cause, but there's a I believe there's a window. What's happening to the Palestinians is a window into the future for workers everywhere if we continue to allow the fourth industrial revolution to steamroller us into this world. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's completely spot on, Andy. And I thank you, thank you for sharing that. So let me just start with, because Kenny's going to take us back to the establishment in Israel, but I want to start with what, what happened today. And I will need to share my screen a bit just to, just to give a context to the story. Um, so what you're seeing here is really the, dis the historic displacement. The story you're going to hear about is the displacement of Palestinians from their land. We're going to tell that story today, and that's been going on for quite some time. Um, there's the historic Palestine, which is right here, shown here on the left. And then there's the partition plan and the displacement of Palestinians from their land that was around 1947, 1948. And then the pushing of them into areas of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza in 1967. We're going to talk about that. And then there's the situation of 2020, where you see that whole region that they were pushed into is being put, turned into a kind of Swiss cheese. Um, and today's story, I really think is going to be focusing, well, what, I'm showing you this other map of what's called Israel here, um, which I think many people say used to be called Palestine, um, uh, is going to be talking about like the, the, the violence that's taking place. The bombs are taking place both in the Gaza Strip in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem, but the setting off of these events actually start really, um, in East Jerusalem. Um, and and it doesn't start with Hamas bombs. And in fact, I think we have to go back to things like the U.S. government, U.S. recognizing Jerusalem as Israel's, um, the U.S. setting up its the U.S. setting up its embassy in Jerusalem, the U.S. Um, uh, basically uh, having the U.S. recently getting out of the Iran or going back to 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 working with Iran around the nu nuclear sanctions deal. I think there's issues of that that are that are part of what's taking place right now um, that are going to be related to that. Um, but the initial set off for this comes in early May when essentially settlers. Uh, oh, and of course, the, uh, the other thing to remember 
are the Abraham Accords, where the United Arab Emirates were brought to the peace table with Israel and said, okay, we, have, you know, we were going to recognize Israel and things like that. All of those things fit into, I think, the story of what led us to today. Um, and that is part of what's called the peace process. And the peace process that's happening there should be understood really as a slow, sometimes a fast, but really a slow displacement process. Um, and the way it's working, and this is what's happened in East Jerusalem, is essentially the Israeli government lets settlers or encourages settlers to go, Israeli settlers, to go into regions that are occupied by Palestinians and take their, take their territory. And recently, a section of East Jerusalem, there were a, a number of families that were both legally and I would say illegally displaced by settlers, Israeli, Israeli um, military, and the, the Israeli courts that said, yeah, you can go take, their, take these families' uh, houses that they built um, or that were built, I think, by was, whether they were built by Jordanians or by, they weren't built by those people who were coming into them. Um, so they were being displaced. And I think it, it was a total of 28 families of about 500 people. That was in May 2nd when that came through. And then by May 10th, and this is during Ramadan, you had the attacks on the Al-Aqsa um, Mosque. All right. And the reason I say this is these are, these are all provocations <laughs> that took place just prior. It was, it was in response to these displacements of the settlers. It was in, I mean, a, a displacement of the Palestinians. It was in response to the attacks on the Al-Aqsa Mosque, like literally gas, gas were um, thrown into the mosque while people were praying, as well as, um, I'm going to stop sharing this, um, as well as, uh, what was it, uh, rubber bullets. And then um, Hamas basically responded with um, missile attacks um, into, uh, into Israel. And, and really, I feel like it was provoked by, by, by Israel. To, and once Hamas did that, then Israel came back with a, a tremendous response. Many, many people, hundreds of people have been killed. You've seen the bringing down of the towers in Gaza. Um, and then I think AP offices have been destroyed or wrecked. Um, many children have been killed. It's, it's really been a one-sided affair. Um, and uh, this has been called Israeli's right to defend itself. So that's how it's being justified. So this again is a is a is a story in miniature of the of the of the pushing out of Palestinians from their land, them responding to try to do something about it, and uh, and then Israel coming back with a with a heavy blow to say no, this is going to happen. So then now uh, we talk about. Do you have not the other slide, Andy? Like you're not going to go there. Um, I saw other slides. There were other slides, but let me, if you want. Let me, let's go to it and, and we can see if there's anything in there that you thought was worth, hold on. Yes, I think so. I think this is an important slide as well. Okay. It's what do you a, think important to say about that? Well, it's talking about how the Palestinians have been, been separated over time. It's giving the figures that we need. Um, yeah. Yeah. And this also shows the number of people who are like really affected by this. There's roughly 7 million is... Jewish Israelis in the region. There's roughly 7 million Palestinians in the region. Um, and about 5 million of those are, are in these occupied territories that you see in yellow, red, and, and green. And almost 2 million, not quite, maybe 1.8 million, are actually settled uh, in this orange region up here in, in Israel. All of them have don't have the same rights as Israelis, which is why it's an apartheid state. Um, and you definitely don't have rights 
in the in the regions of the West Bank and Gaza to move out of those regions, even though you might work out of that regions and, and how, your access to water is different, your access to education, your access to housing. You can be, you can be taken out of your housing anytime. You you can be told you can't get to your job. This is all controlled by the Israeli government, um, saying since you're not Israeli, since you're Palestinian, you have less rights than Israelis. Um, and the only other one was here. This is sort of a summary from, and I, I, I'll post this. This was a, a report by the Human Rights Watch going over why it basically <laughs> says Israeli is an apartheid state that um, is committing genocidal acts. Um, but this kind of gives a summary of some of the, some of the restrictions and attacks that are, the Palestinians are facing. This is a land confiscation. There's a recent viral video of a Brooklyn Jewish um, Israeli uh, and taking over a Palestinian home. Yeah. And uh, and and I think we should post it. I think I'll, if I find it, I'll, I'll post it so people can see it. It's just uh, uh, really harrowing how this Israeli just comes over, is looking at some territory and says, I will just begin to 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 examine it for his own territory, and there there are Palestinians there saying, "What are you doing? This is our land." And he said, "Well, I'm going to take it because if I don't take it, someone else will." Jacob, you know this is not your house. Yes, but if I go, you don't go back. So what's the problem? What are you yelling at me? I didn't do this. I didn't do this. But you, you it's easy to yell at me, but I didn't do this. Yeah, you are helping. stealing my house. And if I don't steal it, someone else is going to steal it. No, no one, no one uh, uh, is allowed to steal it, Yammi. I mean, it's just, <laughs> there is land confiscation <laughs> by just um, Israeli, um, uh, the Israelis, not even by the government, just by citizens of the Israeli state trying of trying to take over um land from families of Palestinians. And there's also lots of videos as well that I think we should post on just bulldozers going over Palestinian homes as people are watching their homes being bulldozed, no? Here in a remote part of the West Bank, Israeli bulldozers have been hard at work demolishing most of a Bedouin village. The result is that 73 people are now without homes, half of them children. The Israeli army arrived at 10 a.m. and began an operation to demolish our homes without any warning. This is an operation in order to evict people from the area, but we are not going to leave. This land is Palestinian. Israel claims it is a war zone. Among the structures that were destroyed are tented homes, latrines, solar panels and animal shelters. The only thing that remains here now, or I should say the only one, are goats. The Israeli army confirms it carried out this demolition and says it was because the structures were illegal. So I think it's just quite clear um, what really is going on here. So. Yeah. And Biden has talked about these acts, not just the recent attacks, but in the past. He's saying they're they're completely justified, and he even says that Israeli's recent violence is not disproportional. It's completely justified. The United States fully supports Israel's right to defend itself against indiscriminate rocket attacks from Hamas and other Gaza-based terrorist groups that have taken the lives of innocent civilians in Israel. I mean that that has been the U.S. record here is to both 
justify it and give cover for it when the United Nations plays a game of acting like it's trying to stop Israel. I would also say that that's a, a fake as well, but the U.S. plays its, its role in making sure that nothing is done to stop its, its most important ally in the Middle East from uh, doing what it wants to do. By every president, it seems like, because yeah. it's not just Biden, it was also Trump, and before that as well as the presidents before that in Clinton's administration, it has been ongoing. Right. And Trump did the only thing which was inevitable, which signed off the agreement to have finally from Tel Aviv, the embassy over to Jerusalem. Um, something that Obama had just signed off not to do at this time of his administration, but never actually said, no, this is not what we're going to do as a country. We're right. not going to send but, that, so. but the the Senate recently confirmed that they will continue to have their embassy in Israel on a vote 97 to three. So, you know, there's not, they could give this all, to, like this is all a cover. This is the U.S. state acting like a bulldozer itself, whether it's Trump at the head or Biden at the head or Clinton or Obama or Bush. There's Both Democrats and Republicans. Exactly. exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. And you can clearly see this union or this support this allyship and uh, APAC as they are part of, uh, yeah, APAC, right? The yeah. one that they, where Democrats and Republicans, bipartisan, bi, um, bipartisan support, go and support uh, this um, apartheid state. So maybe we can take a, a greater uh, look at the broader scope of how uh, this Israeli settlements have happened over time. Uh, Kenny? Yeah, so I, I took a look at, at the history of, um, you know, where where the notion of the Israeli state like began, and uh, I I was surprised to see um, you know the British involvement um, basically after uh, during World War One uh, with the Balfour Declaration, uh, where they basically promised the creation of a of a Israeli state, uh, a nation state uh, within the bounds of Palestine, and. Um, this is a promise made uh, during World War when uh, the British are still fighting the Ottoman Empire. They haven't won the war, but they're already promising uh, land, uh, and they, they are promising land to uh, to different people. Actually, uh, the French, uh, the ruler of Mecca, uh, to the British themselves, um, to the Israeli Zionists, the people that want to create a uh, a nation state. I really. Um, political state right like to for people to uh to live at <clears throat> and uh so then the war is over um uh, and in 1922 the british themselves uh have a mandate to rule over palestine and um this is the preamble to basically what uh the persecution that starts happening in europe of, of the jewish and obviously the you know the in germany the nazis start persecuting um jewish people in eastern europe but uh it's important to note too that the the British themselves and other European states don't want Jewish people in their in their in their countries. Like they have very restrictive uh, migration policies. Um, the British themselves uh, are concerned about uh, the fabric of the British uh, society. You know, anti-Semitism growing supposedly. They're concerned about labor. You know, too much uh, worker, too many workers coming to to England. Uh, they're concerned about assimilation of the Jewish people. Uh, you know, and all these things kind of sound familiar, I think, uh, for different immigrant groups. And so um, it, it kind of like uh, it gives the context of, you know, why uh, as people are getting persecuted, they, they want to go somewhere. And 
So from 1929 to 1938, you have a, about 250,000 uh, Jewish people uh, migrate to Palestine. And, um, and you start uh, seeing uh, militant groups, Jewish militant groups uh, fighting for a place of their own in, 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 in Palestine and with uh, some um, you know, British support. Uh, but actually these Jewish groups are fighting both uh, Palestinian groups and the British uh, states for, uh, for the right to create, uh, to continue migration basically, and eventually create a nation state. Um, and so the British themselves clamp down on these, uh, um, on these uh, like uh, uh, groups that are fighting for the right to keep migrating. Um, and they actually uh, persecuted a lot of Jewish people in Palestine, the, the British as they ruled uh, Palestine. Uh, at one point, I believe they uh, interrogated 120,000 people, Jewish people. Um, like one out of every five Jews uh, were um, kind of persecuted and questioned under British rule. And then, but this becomes unpopular, uh, people started taking notice and um, the second world war happens um, and um, this is unpopular, right? And, and then um, the US, uh, the, you know, Europe gets destroyed, uh, reconstruction happens in, in, in Britain and, or in Europe and, and the British become uh, depending, economically depending on the financing from the US. And so the US basically pressures the British to hand over the issue of, uh, Israel, the, 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 the creating a nation state of Israel to the United Nations. And this is basically the first major issue of the newly created United Nations. Um, and in 1947, um, they uh, finally made a resolution 202, I believe, uh, where they uh, uh, agreed to the partition of Palestine, uh, basically equal amounts of land for Palestinians, in the uh, Israeli states. Um, and so ca that kind of, you know, is the culmination of all these events uh, and the promises that the British made uh, to kind of, at least from my perspective, you know, use as the safety valve, you know, of having Jewish migrants in, in Europe, but while also having a strategic um, uh, occupation of that region because it is kind of like a, the gateway to to access the Middle East, access oil, and so yeah, that's the creation of um, the Israeli state through uh, a UN resolution. Yeah, I mean that that's helpful, Kenny. And one of the things that makes me think about is the term Zionism, because people often equate the term Zionism with with being Jewish. And that is not the case. Um, there are many Jews and Jews back in the time when, when, the, when the Zionists, who basically are people who say, we want a Jewish state. We want a state only for Jews where Jews have rights. And that was the, the, the viewpoint of the Zionists. And, and to do that, those Zionists would make deals with people who hated Jews because like, yeah, we can't live together. So the Zionists weren't just willing to make deals with people who hated Jews in, in Britain. They were willing to make deal with people who hated Jews anti-Semites in Germany. Um, uh, but there were Jews and particularly, and this is, it's not only the Bolsheviks, um, like the people in the Russian revolution who felt this way. There were Jews in the United States. There were Jews around the world who were for internationalism. In fact, when, when the Russian revolution happened, 
one of the ways that the Russian Revolution was attacked was to say this, that this was a revolution made by Jews. And what that's not true, but there were a lot of Jewish people who were part of that revolution, but they were internationalists. They did not believe in this idea of a Jewish state. In fact, when the Russian, after the Russian Revolution happens, the, the Jews who were part of that international revolution actually built alliances with, with Muslims uh, to the east of them. And in order, in order to, to essentially bring them into the fold and, you know, uh, open, uh, open them up to the rights for women and rights for workers there as well. Um, and also to liberate those territories from, I think, the, the Russian czar at the time. So, again, there was two different ways to go here. And it's not about Zionism being synonymous with Judaism. It's not. Zionism is synonymous with the racist project of saying we will establish a country for one set of people over another. And it's been a tool for empires, whether it be the British Empire, the US, the former Soviet Union tried to get their hand in there at one point in time around 67 and was unsuccessful. But then around the time of 67, after the six year war, then it really, the Israel proved its, 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 its value for, uh, for the US empire. So this is what Zionism has been about, which is, racists who who are guns for hire for whoever wants to help them do their stuff and that is the different than judaism judaism is a religion and it has a has a rich history to it and there were plenty of jews who gave their lives for the international the notion of international working class revolution um, which is very different than what people who were trying to build a land just for jews were trying to do you know, I think that's one thing I found out that, you know, a lot of this stuff gets framed, at least in public discourse, as, as a just simply a religious issue, you know, that has thousands of years of, you know, discord. But in, in reality, uh, it's about empire, divide and conquer. Uh, because prior to, you know, World War One, basically, um, what from what I read, uh, people were coexisting, right? Like 80% were Palestinians, like 15% uh, created. Uh, Christian and like five percent Jewish, uh, and they uh, actually like intermingle, inter learn about each other, and like they, you know, they had uh, they observed different holidays together, um, and it was until you know in, the empire got involved that they created separate institutions for the different you know uh, groups, and, and and that's where a lot of the discord starts happening, and also it's about land ultimately. You know, in 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 about occupation and in you know, in survival, like at least from my perspective, for different people. And so, and again, you showed the maps earlier, and and you see the constant like shrinking up of of land and, and space for the Palestinian, um, you know, people, which are also not all uh, Muslim, right? <laughs> Palestinian is not a, a religion. It, it's uh, it's basically a group of people that didn't have it. You know, there is a Christian uh, a minority. Um, you know, uh, Palestinians, and so it's not it's not all like uh, again, it's not this Muslim Jewish thing necessarily. Uh, I think <laughs> even with our own explanations, I think we're going to have people refer people. I mean, not refer anything by our links, but people should do their own research on this because it's very, um, 
it it's more than just what we're saying. No, it's it, I think there's more context stuff that we're not probably giving you. So even as I try to give some context here about um, the the forced displacement of Palestinians that uh, I decided to look into, I, I still will not be able to give up um, a lot of information that I think is just a broad scope, right? And, um, so my my uh, contribution to this will be in the form of some of the things that I have found from the um, this resource called Forced Displacement, Displacement in Palestine and Israel, um, in Israel from a resource uh, that is, uh, I'll link to um, our episode notes from the American Friends Service Committee. And uh, I'm not going to go through it entirely, but I think when I was reading it, it was very, um, you know, you could see how these displacements have been happening for a very long time that has not just begun as we've just, people think it's just something that has happened since 1940. It's begun since before that. Um, obviously, some of the more major uh, displacement has happened because of massive migration uh, from Europe after 1920. Um, so, um, so let's just quickly, I want to define what loss of display, forced displacement is the loss of one's home or land. And so at the start of the 20th century, uh, less than 5% of the population of historic um, uh, Palestine was Jewish, less than 5%. And then, as you two have also covered, by 1948, the Jewish population in the area had grown to over 30% of the total population as a result, again, through, because of the mass immigration from Europe, with most immigrants arriving from Europe after 1920. But let's also remember that the push for this, uh, again, because Kenny had said by Britain, was because there was uh, there was trying Britain was trying to promise U.S. American Jews that this push for this um, Israel uh, Israeli state would be uh, there for uh, anyone who wanted to immigrate there as a way to have sort of this um, this um, this refuge for uh, for the Jewish people, and that wasn't really because of anything altruistic. That was because the British had wanted the support from the U.S. American Jews to support, to, to convince uh, the USA government to go into these proxy British wars. It wasn't because of any altruistic motive, right? So there was this, uh, this, 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 this promise or this, this encouragement um, um, by a very, the, the American Jews, but it's confusing, or rather, it it was it goes counter to what the, the British had also promised the Palestinians that if they had supported them in the Ottoman Empire conflict, that they would then also support them in having their Palestinian territory um, to themselves, and they would also be supported in that state. No, so you had the here you have these colonizers really taking advantage for their own means and taking advantage of allyship to be able to support their wars back at the Ottoman Empire, and then with the um uh the the later on after um um to try to get the u s american support um in british um wars um when there was the part partition plan that was proposed by the u n in nineteen forty seven uh the jewish population owned about seven percent of the land of the historic palestine and constituted only a slim majority of fifty five percent of the population in the era designated for the new jewish state 
and uh, there were uh, even before uh, that infamous date of in May 1948, uh, and here are just a few statistics I'll give during the 1947 and 1948, Israel systematically demolished 531 Palestinian villages, villages, not homes, like villages, entire villages inside the area that became Israel. And more than 200 of these villages were destroyed. And between 250,000 and 350,000 people were displaced. And this was all before May 1948, uh, when the first Arab-Israeli war, uh, war officially began. And right at that time, then, after uh, ultimately about uh, 750,000 Palestinians were displaced as a result of the war, and then the systematically continuous demolitions of, of Palestinian towns and villages continues until this day. That has continued uh, to this day as we're seeing through demolitions of people's homes and even with the viral video that I just showed, this is one example of many uh, Israelis taking over uh, um, Palestinians. I want to say that uh, any form home demolitions are the leading cause of forced displacement in the occupied Palestinian territory. And these demolitions come in the form of um, whether they be administrative or punitive or just military and land clearing demolitions. That could be, as I had also described, through bulldozing of homes and taking over um, places that were supposed to be places where the Palestinians were to reside without um, Israel's Israelis uh, taking over. Like, Gaza Strip or, or the, uh, the West Bank. One of the ways that I that um, that forced displacement occurs isn't always through bulldozing, as I had also said. It's also being denied freedom of movement, or access to health services, or basic sanitation, water, and electricity. Sometimes they'll just be pulled off the grid, and just not given the right to have access to the resources they need, and they'll be eventually um, pressured to move out. Um, by taking people off the grid and even taking over educational facilities and religious institutions. So that is not, so they can't, so the Israelis won't necessarily say, well, we didn't push anybody off. The land just sort of cleared itself. But if you take people off the grid, then what happens is people are not able to survive in this specific area. And then that's how Israelis move in. And the borders just keep getting, they keep moving. Uh, into the Palestinian um, designated area that the Israelis have given uh, and, and, and keeps crossing over that to the point where now we have as an open prison uh, on the Gaza Strip where people are not even able to have a lot of access or movement outside of that place because you have Egypt on one side and you have the Israeli, uh, I don't even know how to say it, and is it Israeli territory because it's still Palestinian historically um their their land so i'll just say uh the palestinian current territory that uh, there is and when you look at the west bank at that uh as well people either as the border kept crossing and being displaced you had a bunch of um palestinians moving into the jordan area but then even that created conflict because the jordanians would then also uh, move over the Palestinians to specific areas as refugees within their own territory. You have a situation where the Palestinians are basically 
I don't know what's going to happen eventually, but they're just massive refugees outside and on their own, their own territory being displaced that you're going to create obviously these tensions that we have today because you're eventually, it's like a pressure cooker. The more that we, they keep, um, the walls keep closing in, these borders keep closing in, uh, they're going to spill over. And that's why we have these, um, these conflicts today. Um, and the resident rights are being revoked. Uh, even the Palestinians who live in, in uh, um, designated or the Israeli state are, uh, are monitored, surveillanced. They're not allowed to um, move freely. And even when they go through uh, order checks, um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a daily harassment if they go to work or if they go to schools. The daily lives of Palestinians is one of that reminds us a lot of what happens in South Africa. Yeah. I want to say too that um, so a lot of this um, occupation of, of land is not that international laws actually are binding, you know, for, for empires, <laughs> imperial powers, but but the, a lot of these occupations are illegal in international law. And you know the the reason that the, the Israeli state gives often is that um, that the Palestinian state is not a thing, you know that they don't exist basically, um, and so for them it's it's fine. And so yeah, they don't you know international law is not really binding resolutions, you know, don't really do much. Uh, maybe I'll give a current figure as of right now. Uh, there are according to some estimates there's like as of 2019 more than 5.6 million palestinians have been registered with the unrwa as refugees uh and uh and there has just it, it's a continuous displacement of the palestinians and those numbers are predicted to go higher now that um israel still is getting a lot of support from major players such as the usa and european forces uh, european nations yeah, and I think, Eduardo, you were the one who was saying that the British also made promises to the Palestinians as well as to the the people who, the Jews who wanted to establish Israel, correct? Yeah. yeah. Uh, when? Go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Andy. And I, I, I think that's interesting to me because I think about the United States and the Kurds, you know, mm -hmm. I think about the United States and Iraq or United States and Iran, you know, like playing countries against each other playing an ethnic group against each other. Oh, we'll support you in your cause in this part of the of northern Iraq. But when we're allies with Turkey, the Kurds in the south and the south, no, we're not. Like, this is how empires work. There is no deal made with an empire that works out well for an oppressed group. Um, now, I understand now people are, would say, oh, well, it worked out well for this set of Zionists. You know, it's true. There are people who got, who, who got very rich off that. But I would say ultimately for the cause of the international working class, and there are many Jews who find themselves, who've had a vision of international working class solidarity, that, that, that promise that is made from an empire is always gonna come against us. Um, and again, it's another lesson that the left has to learn as we literally hand ourselves over to Moderna and the Department of Defense and Operation Warp Speed and the US state is you, you don't make an alliance with these people without losing. Yeah. And even, even promising the Jewish people, right, a, a national home 
didn't even come out of a generosity. I think it's important that Yes, that I had mentioned that, Andy, but it's also important to understand that a lot of people think, well, the, the Jewish were trying, they're also being given a home because they were being um, persecuted, whether they also were displaced in European nations because also they were, you know, scattered about Europe and not necessarily having, um, you know, one nation for themselves, what happened to their nation. So it's, under, it's, it's understandable why some people would say, well, they also deserve to have their home. They also deserve to have their status as people that also have been persecuted for a long time. But it didn't come out of generosity. I I'll, I can't find it right now, but I'll read this part from the Britannica. This is most recognized, right? The, the, this The declaration of a national home for the Jewish people did not come about through an act of generosity or stirrings of conscience over the bitter fate of the Jewish people. It was meant in part to prompt US American Jews to exercise their influence in moving the United States to support British post-war policies, as well as to encourage Russian Jews to keep their nation fighting. So that's from very well-recognized mainstream uh, in, in, uh, web encyclopedia. No, So I, I just think it's important to recognize that. When, um... The resolution was made for partition of Palestine and, and to give Israeli and Palestinians an equal amounts of land. Uh, the Soviet Union was also interested in that. They also voted for it. You know, they also thought they could influence this uh, newly created Israeli state to be, you know, part of the, uh, you know, the sphere of influence of the Soviet bloc. And um, and so, and they were obviously wrong. <laughs> Because you know Israel, Israel became you know an important uh, military and intelligence ally in the fight against uh, communism, you know. And, and so that, that again, that's also important to note that it wasn't. It was yes, like a a, a, a play by the British and, and and U.S. you know empires, but the Soviets were also in agreement with with creating the state. You see, you communists. <laughs> yeah, and no, and it, I, Eduardo, you joke, but that's that is part of the historic, um, not just failure, but betrayal on the part of these governments, which have called themselves socialists, which have called themselves communists, which have talked about the international working class trying to make deals with an apartheid state. You can't do that, like. The U.S., a capitalist country, can totally do it. Racism is completely in alignment with capitalism. But you cannot talk about spreading communism as, a, as something that's looking to build. To, you need anti-racism. You need anti-sexism. You can't talk about spreading communism and then cut deals with Israel, which was what the Soviet Union was trying to do. And it exposes the fraud of calling that socialist. But, and it has led people to go like, yeah, Socialists are bullshit, and there's, there's, that's part of our history. I also think it's important to understand that there is corporate complicity, right? There's like, Caterpillar is really well known for having these demolitions out there displacing Palestinians, and it's most directly the most one because you can see it in videos or photos, you know, that you can see how they uh, take over homes. And, uh, yeah, I, I just thought about that. I, I would also, there's a few things to say, which is the, the current, what are called the occupied Palestinian territories in the West Bank and Gaza and um, 
East Jerusalem are some of the most densely populated par- plant populations in the, in the globe. And the palace, the governments they have called the Palestinian Authority, part of them have been elected, but part of them do act that, that, that government acts as a kind of a, of an Israeli police force in that region as well. And that has been the, there are political divisions within, within the Palestinian cause. Um, there's the Fatah and Hamas. And Hamas is the, has historically been more militant. And I don't know if it's more independent. I don't know. But that's the way it's portrayed. Um, but there are a lot of, pro- and so there are a lot of problems with the political leadership of the Palestinian movements. And of course, they've often looked to other, Arab states as like helping them, but they've been played by those Arab states. Um, and that's what you see again with these deals that are being made between United Arab Emirates and the United States and the Abraham Accord, but also Saudi Arabia, which hasn't signed on to the accord, but is, is, is behind, the, behind, the, behind doors making deals with Arab countries that have made deals with Israel and, and dealing with Israel itself and also the United States. And the United States backs Israel, so you can't have it both ways. Um, Saudi Arabia counts on U.S. military aid to um, to, to destroy Yemen, and U.S. Uh, gives you know Israel to the tune of it used to be twenty billion, now it's almost forty billion dollars a year, almost all military aid. So you can't say that those countries, those states, are operating in any way that's going to help the Palestinian cause when they all seek you know, to make alliances with the same ugly benefactor, which is the U.S. And the U.S. is at this point, just like the British was back in the day, they are now the empire that is responsible for much of the mischief that is going on here. Um, and they promote it as a way of dividing and conquering. And now, and now in the case of Israel, they have a dedicated military, essentially, in that region who's willing to do what the United States says. There are there are questions for people on the left of who controls who. Does Israel com- control the United States or does the United States control Israel? I think there's no question in my mind. Israel can play a few games. But by and large, I believe, and I'm pretty convinced, that the tune that is, re- that the tune is set by the United States, not by Israel. I also wonder about like the, um, the strategic relevance of Israel you know, to the, the U.S., um, I don't know if we should discuss that, um, you know, as to why is it um, important to keep prompting up uh, Israel, regardless of their actions. Um, um, yeah, I don't know. Because, I mean, for me, what I think of is it's there are implications that there is a feedback loop. It's not just like the Israel is doing their thing, but the U.S. benefits like from the Israel's narrative, you know, because like even in Latin America, you know, during, like, in the 80s, when the U.S. introduced the evangelical church, you know, which traditionally supports Israel, uh, they, there is prayer, uh, breakfast prayer groups uh, that influence the presence of Central America, for example. I know that for a fact. The Guatemala was the second country that supported the move of the, um, Israel, uh, the U.S. embassy to Israel, you know, declaring basically, um, to, sorry, Jerusalem. So declaring Jerusalem, you know, the capital of Israel. And so in Guatemala, you know, has a strong evangelical influence, you know. And, and so there is this feedback loop that, you know, galvanizes uh, support from other countries. Um, 
and like there are historical ties too, um, you know, where uh, Israel supported Guatemala in, in a fight uh, uh, against the British actually. Uh, and, and so my point is, and, and we know that that also has an influence in the elections here. There is a sector of the population here that, you know, supports Israel. <laughs> You know, in in it plays a role in the the sham of the elections of this nation. Um, you know, the technology that Israel uses to occupy Palestinians is being used in, in Latin America. It's exported all the time. You know, the surveillance tech. Israel today is like one of the most like you know highest per capita like educated people. And a lot of their technology is 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 military war surveillance tech. You know, in and now they're a project also like the epicenter of, of Petri dish of the vaccination project, you know, where people, you know, are being tracked in within the Israeli state, you know. Um, and, and so, again, like Israel is, is not just this dog that they unleash over there, but it's also this like um, ideological almost piece that they can wave in front of different populations and people and in, in use it to an advantage, and also it's just a lab. Israel is just like a, a, Israel and Palestine is it's a laboratory for a war machinery. Um, you know, be, be, besides the obvious point of you know having some sort of a destabilizing force in an area that is rich in petroleum. Um, so it, you know, to me, that's important to highlight that it, you know it's not just their issue; it has implications for the, the other issues that we're fighting here. You know, uh, immigration, surveillance militarizations of our streets, you know, it, it has implications for many things. It's, it's not just a moral issue of Israelis, you know, and, and Palestinians or Palestinians being oppressed. It's, it's about our own oppression too. So, you know, that, that's why I think we have a stake in, 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 in knowing this and fighting and joining the fight, you know, against the occupation of Palestinians and that we have individually have a stake in it. it it's not just a moral issue. Yeah, to Kenny's point, it's interesting. Thank you for bringing up Latin America, Kenny, because I, myself, um, being Mexican, I am also aware of what's happening in, well, at least in my country. And in back in 2017, um, uh, the Prime Minister of Israel visited Mexico, and there was this uh, support for Israel as well. But I, I, I was greatly also well, so I'm more so surprised by the fact that um, Mexico didn't move its embassy to Jerusalem like everyone else did um, and stayed in Tel Aviv. So there was also the respect for the Palestinian people. But then it shows the complete hypocrisy of <laughs> like support for not Israeli, uh, excuse me, Palestinians, but also for people as the working class. When you have Mexico buying lots of cybersecurity technology from Israel to be able to monitor its people as well as monitor just exactly what Israel is doing to the Palestinians and to their own people as well. No. So I think this whole um, stance on Mexico's stance of supporting Palestinians, because they came up with their statement and support of Palestinians and also making sure that they have a profound deep respect for each other is still means nothing when you're using that cyber technology to be able to, monitor just at people in my country as well as you're doing as well as the Israelis are doing no to the to to the Palestinians and to their own people. But Israel is the biggest by the way uh seller of their cyber uh, security tech in the world. Yeah. And 
it's it's worth remembering that China recently has started to form links and relationship with Iran that starts to mirror that is trying to mirror what the United States has historically had with Israel uh, in terms of a laboratory for tech, a laboratory for surveillance. I suspect a laboratory for using methods of division and divide and conquer to, to defeat one population and lift up another um, and a min- lift up a, a minority population, which are all these things. I do agree that Israel is a lab and they do have the green pass and all these things are being tested as ways. And, and Israel is leading the way for the globe, you know, with China right there and, and United States right there on how to do vaccine passports and how to collect data on its own population. But, you know, it's interesting, right? In the 21st century, we've talked about data, but what do we say? Data is the new oil in the 21st century. And in the 20th century, empires were ruled by, the, by, decide, by, by essentially deciding who controls the oil, not who controlled the data, but who controlled the oil. So if you were an empire, if you were the British empire, you needed to control that oil. And if you were the US empire, you needed to control that oil. And that's really what, you, what Israel is about. It is, it is like a warrior nation, right? Everyone there has to go get, get into the military. It's well armed. And, and if anybody gets out of line, and this is what the Six Day War proved to the US and why the US really cemented its relationship, it said, okay, these people are prepared and this country is prepared to, to essentially um, discipline any country in that region that gets out of line, any regime that gets out of line. We have we have a reliable pit bull, and so I do think that's what was shown on that day. And so the U.S. has played a role to make sure that Israel is armed, but no one else gets to be armed unless you can make momentary alliances. U.S. helped arm Iraq, but then U.S. helped arms Iran. They are constantly feeding Israel because that that is their go-to country in the region to make sure that they have control of that oil. Not so that that oil can go to the United States. The United States actually, as Kenny has alluded to, currently is one of it is the major producer of oil, I think, uh, in the in the world right now. But it is about China not having access to that oil or Europe not having access. It is making sure that the U.S. controls the oil that other imperial competitors or pretenders might think. Don't get it. Don't get it twisted. You're not going to be able to run this globe because we're going to be able the one who has the, our hand on the spigot because we have the largest military base in the region there, not a U.S. military base, but Israel. And that's how that's how the United States conceived of it as a giant military nuclear weapon military base that they can use and put to their disposal. And and essentially, this is what I think is happening today. What happened with I truly believe that that. Netanyahu and the Israel provoked this action. But, so I'm trying to figure out why. Like, why did they? Because this is, of course, there's going to be a continuation of the pushing out of, of the Palestinians and collecting land. But they know that this was going to start, it's going to rise, and it's going to, and it was going to end. They, they had no, this is not the beginning, I don't believe, of a long term war against the Palestinians. There's going to be, there's a ceasefire right now. But I do believe this was a message to the United States of, in the context of make, of the U.S. trying to make a new deal with Iran and possibly making a deal with Iran without sanctioning Iran for having relations with Hamas and Hezbollah and things like that, I think Israel is attempting to say, don't forget who you count on as your, as your go-to power in the region. 
So I do believe Israel is making a play here to say to the United States, don't don't make don't make an, an arrangement with Iran that makes us uncomfortable because you're not we, we are going to make the life a little difficult for you. We're going to make it uncomfortable for you here. And I that's what I do believe has happened, because as soon as this started happening, you saw Republicans come out and basically say, we've got to stop dealing with Iran altogether, you know, um, as a as a part of it. So that is my understanding. This the, essentially not only is there an, is there the, the, the racism of Israeli apartheid. But again, you have these people's lives being played with like toys for, for, for bigger political reasons. I'm not saying I know what that reason is, but I don't think what happened was just like an accident. It seems to be a provocation that was made by Israel. And they seem to keep pushing and pushing and pushing until Israel was going to, I mean, the Palestinians were going to have to respond so then they could come back. And I feel like there was an, there was an interest there. My sense is that interest is to force the U.S. hand to get out of what it's trying to do with Iran, but I'm not sure. I think that's a good assessment. I think the there are uh, conversations in with other NATO uh, nations around this, and I think that that is sort of not what Israel would want for their territories. They don't want to be any sort of negotiations with you. So I, I think it's a fair assessment. I thought about that as well. I just don't know. I don't personally think, I think the relationship between Iran and the USA has been so severed, severed is the word, severed, severed, that I don't know if it will go along, but we'll see. I mean, I, I but I agree with your assessment. First to, I think this would be a good opportunity for us to share our final thoughts on what we make of all of this and how also we think we should proceed or what we could do in solidarity or whatever reflections we might have from our conversation here. Um, because we shared our initial thoughts and also what we've also looked into. But I don't know if this might be a good moment for us to discuss what should we do as a people that live in the USA far from the Israeli and Palestinian conflict? I think I'll add a little more to what I had said and initially initially to this to, to this episode, which is <clears throat> my my support and my um my support is for the Palest goes to the Palestinian people, it goes to also the workers in Israel who are also being surveillanced, who are also um, being used and being <clears throat> pitted against other workers as the, such as the Palestinians, because I think that if the Israelis and the Palestinians actually work together, I think that the Israelis and the Palestinians could really defeat the ruling class that's doing all of this, um, you know, just pitting workers against workers. And I, I have said this in the last episode, I think, and I really do look forward to a time when we can work through our differences, even here in the USA, so that we're not being pitted against each other and we're not being divided, such as I'm seeing clearly what's happening in this in this country. But as I had said in, your, in the conversation we had over the phone, Andy, I, <clears throat> I got bothered, I got upset by seeing many 
progressives, liberals out there on the streets during these past marches showing up for Palestine. But how do I say it without venting, without also making me, I'm still hurt by some things, <laughs> but not showing up for workers here, not being in solidarity for people here, such as families, such as workers. And the very recent cases of the reopening of schools, but it's in the service industry, it's in the medical industry, it's showing solidarity with all of our workers here. That's how you can show support with the Palestinians. It's being in allyship with your own fellow workers here and not being complicit with the state and trying to cause this massive surveillance on us as workers, as people, by helping and supporting the ruling class here in the USA, by doing the, the work of them and signing on to negotiations with uh, tech. I mean, I, I don't know what people don't get about that. We criticize Israel for having this massive surveillance on their people and the Palestinians, but we're not afraid of our surveillance here and being complicit with that and allowing that for, to, for that to happen not only unto our children, unto, unto us as well. I don't see how people don't connect those dots. And that makes me upset because then I just think it's being fetishized. This, this I said this earlier, this is just, oh, I need to show up because I need to be a part of this movement because it's trending or it's, I have to jump on the bandwagon when every day we have to be a part of this movement. And that's showing up here for ourselves as workers, for the workers in Latin America, the workers in Palestine and the workers around the world. It's being fighting the resistance is here. And I've come to understand that over time through this, through what's left and also through the whole COVID journey that I've taken on. And maybe we'll talk about that another time. But I just, I, I don't want to dismiss what's happening there because it's important. But so is what's happening here is very important. And, you know, we see in the socialist panel, which I want people to look at, you know, that right now it's a very politically isolating time. And it's mostly because there is this sleepiness or this complicity, right? But the sleepiness of doing everything because of what we're being told. And I think it's important to see how that we shouldn't be dismissing even though it might be a little vague sometimes or ambiguous, I don't think it is always about what's happening with COVID. I think it's important to note that even Anthony Fauci had just come out in this bombshell uh, news that, you know, he doesn't dismiss the fact that this virus and this, I, I want YouTube to state that Fauci said that he is not convinced that the virus has come from a natural, uh, came naturally and doesn't dismiss the possibility having leaked from a lab. UFOs are also out on the rise, and so are uh, Jeffrey Epstein connected to uh, Bill Gates. I think there's a lot of things that we need to look into, and the only way we're going to get this sorted out is if we start focusing here on what's happening in the U.S. affairs, and we start fighting back and seeing that there's a lot of stuff we don't know, and we shouldn't just say yes to everything just because we're being told in the name of science. So 
I, I think that that's where it's coming from. And if people have been following us along in the what's left journey of all of this COVID stuff, I think they would know what I'm talking about. But that's how we can show resistance. That's how we show solidarity. That's all I say. Yeah. Um, empires go to war to the degree they can control their domestic populations. Um, that's in my mind. And, um, you know, what's happening to the Palestinian people, of course, is repulsive. Um, but, you know, we can't forget that our, our destinies are interlinked. You know, I think that's something that we need to understand, like with international workers, people, any people, any oppressed people in the world, our destinies are interlinked. Um, and so as for us here, you know, I think it's just basically rephrasing what you're saying, Eduardo, is that we have to understand that the only real solidarity we can provide to any oppressed people is to fight our own ruling class. You know, the most vicious ruling class in the world, the most vicious ruling class the world has ever, has ever seen, the most genocidal ruling class the world has ever seen. And so, yeah, of course, you know, we have to understand that, you know, some of us here are going to have to refuse, you know, loading the weapons. Some of us are going to have to refuse, you know, uh, doing the bidding of the capitalist class, our, our, our capitalist class that, you know, has have strings everywhere in the world. But again, you know, we have to aim for the throat. We have to go for, you know, our own ruling class. And, and you know, I understand the well-meaning, you know, intentions of people, but if your fight is not personal, I don't believe you can provide anything substantial. You know, it's flaky. It's, uh, you know, it has to be, you have to be fighting for yourself and, and you know, and, and, and we've said in all the episodes in common association because uh, we have a tall task to fight the most vicious ruling class in the world. You know, we live in a very militarized society. Uh, surveillance is exponentially rising. Uh, the, the digital prison that we're going to be subjected to, it, it's, it's moving fast before we, we even, we're even blinking. Um, and so we have to understand the insidiousness of all these uh, things that come together to create a, a world that I personally don't want to live in, you know, that, a world that I think is way more uh, uh, damaging than anything that, you know, this quote unquote pandemic can do to us, you know, and, and again, the fight is not just for now. It's, you know, they're, they're, it's, it's for the future. You know, we are in a building uh, time. You know, we have to kind of reformulate and, and, and build the foundations of a movement, of a, of a fight. But again, let's not forget that our destinies are collectively interlinked. The, 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 the imperial project that has put the Palestinian workers into this situation um, was, was based on oil, was based on controlling and 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 getting access to oil and then the markets through that and things like that. And that same project is the basis of, of the, of the immiseration of the U S workers, right. Um, of, of U S workers in this country. Um, and those are, that is how this, to me, that's how this is linked, which is that, that, that project of claiming control of oil. And of course it's more, it's profits and markets and things like this, but that is where, Palestinian workers who went on strike, right, who have actually gone on strike now, like that's one of the things they did uh, to fight what's happened. About 1.9 million Palestinian workers in Israel went on strike and shut down their shops and shut down their works and didn't go to their construction sites. And that was 
Muslims and Christians and atheists, but Palestinians. Um, and that had an impact there. And it was like, it was seen by the people, by, it was reported at least in the region as like something that was fairly unprecedented, not done since the second intifada. Um, and the reason I say that, the reason I say that that's so important is that's what wouldn't have needed to happen here, but in relationship, not just to the U.S. going after oil and having strikes to stop the U.S. continued occupation of, of Afghanistan or of Iraq, but in its new project of collecting everyone's data. That now that is that is now an adjoined that is now a new frontier for our empire in terms of what its plans are for immiserating the populations around the globe, whether that be in Africa or in the Middle East uh, or in South America, but also our own population. And I don't I just don't believe that if workers are not prepared to fight that here, then they have no solidarity to offer someone else. And if if it was I've always said about our own union. A union that does not, that is, the workers who are not prepared to strike for their own cause can offer no solidarity to anyone. All they can say is like, oh, I believe in your cause, but we can't give you anything. We can't actually give you anything in that struggle because we're not fighting ourselves. And that's the situation I really do feel the left is in and U.S. workers are in as we essentially topple backwards and accept lockdown, accept vaccination, accept contact tracing except Moderna and Pfizer and J&J with their, with their jabs and saying black people have to get in line for that. Students have to get in line for that. Colleges are going to tell you if, if you're a working class accepting that sort of prison, then you have, you're, you have no solidarity to offer Palestinians who are facing the constriction around their own prison. The only fight you have to give them is fighting the prison that's being built here. And if we are successful, we can extend the resources of that fight. But if we don't even wage the fight, then the only thing we're giving them is sentiment. And sentiment is really what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is giving right now. Sentiment is what Bernie Sanders is giving right now. They're trying to rebrandish. Like, they all told us to vote for Biden, which is a giant betrayal of the working class. And many people on the left said we're going to vote for Biden, which is, again, a giant betrayal. So now what they get to do is they get to kind of like, well, I'm not with my, that centrist section of the Democratic Party, which is doing that, I'm going to make some statements about apartheid. I'm going to make some statements about the Palestinians. And they get to re, refashion, like they get to put out their little card that says, here's my little, I'm part of the left card. But it's, it's worthless. It has me, zero meaning. And really all it's meant to do is to hide the fact that for, in their case, they're not going to wage any opposition. In fact, they're going to continue to back the forces that are build, continuing to build the cages on the border that are continuing to prop up empire in the Middle East and that are going to continue to back up Israel and, and, and you know, go against the Palestinians, even as they say, I'm against Israeli apartheid. So that's a fraud there. And, and unfortunately, a left which is not challenging its own ruling class in its own attempts to build a surveillance state and using Israeli as a, as a kind of an experimental lab to do it, then that left has no solidarity to offer the Palestinians because the Palestinians are actually fighting the ruling class there. We're not. And we're actually, we're, we're unilaterally disarming as we stay remote because we can't go on strike. All we can do is log off and log on. And the longer we stay in this remote digital world and the, and the farther we go down that road, the less we as a class will be able to offer any class, any other part of the working class internationally, any sort of solidarity. And that's exactly what the, I think the U.S. ruling class has in mind, which is you won't be able to fight us and you won't be able to help anyone else in that fight.
because we're going to continue to build this prison for you. And so for me, that has been, that has been part of what I, why I feel like there's like a, there's a fakeness to the suddenness with which, and the vigor with which so many people on the left went to this cause and they won't say anything about Operation Warp Speed and they won't say anything about Silicon Valley and they won't say anything about what we've done to, to break up the, the unity between workers by staying remote in our education process. Um, so, and, and they're even, and they won't say anything about the vaccinations and the contact tracing. I, they'll even support it. So for me, I don't, those two things can't line up for me. Um, so something's fake. And I think, unfortunately, even if the person feels like their sentiment is there, sentiment is not solidarity. Solidarity means fighting your own ruling class in its project to put you in the same pen that you see being built for someone else, you know, somewhere else in the globe. Well, that concludes um, our episode. What's Left is a weekly political podcast slash channel challenging the mainstream left. We post information about our topics and our guests on the episode notes where we found this episode or on our blog at what-s-left.webnote.com. I would like to state very quickly that people should write to us. Andy answers all of the mail. <laughs> and we do read, Andy reads everything. And, uh, and, and we've had amazing, wonderful responses and connections and we're hoping that somewhere, some way we'll have some forum for people to engage with each other because it's been a growing uh, what's left community that I think is important for people to have since it's, you know, this feeling of isolation just keeps growing. Anyhow, so, um, yeah. You can find past episodes to this podcast slash channel there and connect with us. I remind folks, if you like anything you have heard here, please share your favorite episode, rate with you, uh, subscribe, turn on notifications <clears throat> on any of our eight platforms on podcasts, Spotify, iTunes Podcast, Stitcher, Google Play, on the channels, BitChute, uh, Libri, LBRY, or Odyssey, O-D-Y-S-E-E, -E, or YouTube, for now, um, and uh, Telegram. If you would like to give us feedback about something you've heard or suggest something for us to cover, contact us through our blog. I'm Eduardo Barca with co-hosts Andy Livingston and Kenny Cepeda. Thank you. Bye-bye.